Welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast where we get root access to some of the unsung heroes of cybersecurity and chat them about their journey so far, looking into the events that have shaped their careers and finding out what motivates them. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Eliza May Austin, CEO and co-founder of both That Security Company and Pocket Sim. Links to both can be found in the podcast description. Eliza is well known for her no-nonsense approach to cybersecurity and a drive to provide the best cybersecurity defenses possible to organizations of every size. This is perhaps best encapsulated by the mission statement on the That Security Company website that says, if we've done a good job, you don't need us anymore. Eliza, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, James. So often with these conversations, we start digging into people's background to find out what initially motivates them. But from my research, I'd like to start our conversation today with what was it specifically about Sandra Bullock's compelling performance in the highly underrated 1995 film, The Net, that caught your attention and set you on this career path? It is highly underrated. I'm glad you've said that. There's so many people that haven't seen it and I'm on a personal one woman mission to talk about it as much as I can. <laughs> so that film, I I loved that film when I was little, just for the sheer fact that she lived on her own, um, which I like. She worked on her own from home, which was totally unheard of back then. And all she did was just faff around with malware and bits of code. And then she ordered pizza over the internet, which back then didn't exist. You had to phone up and speak to a stranger. So I just absolutely fell in love with her in that film. I just thought it was absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, so that's where my journey definitely started when it comes to um, thinking about cybersecurity and, and looking at careers in tech, for sure. And then that's it. I believe you started off with a degree in computer security and digital forensics. What, what was the interest in those that combination? Well, oh, I should say probably what we're supposed to say which is you know I came out of the womb knowing Linux and, and all this kind of thing and having an interest in in digital forensics certainly didn't um for me it was very much a means to an end so I I was thinking meh this is a career for life uh looks like there's plenty of money in it that kind of thing and took a different approach to it than the majority of my peers I guess but I'm glad I did because as soon as I got involved in it I just fell in love with it whether it were the, the technical side or the industry in, in itself, very much just fell in love with it and, and I still am to this day. Um, so I was doing forensic science in London and hated it, absolutely hated it. Um, forensic science in, in university and decided to change to digital forensics and come back up north. So I didn't hate London, I thought it was great. I hated studying about, you know, like I thought, oh yeah, blood splatter patterns and corpses, it's going to be super interesting. But really it was a lot of maths. So if someone gets shot or stabbed and there's some blood, you have to work out like the projection units of the blah, 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 maths talk. And I was just like, no, no, this is not for me. <laughs> Decided um, to, I'd, I'd prefer to sit at a computer and um, and do something a bit less mathsy. But um, yeah, love it. Actually, there's a lot of maths involved in digital forensics, but a lot of it's um, Googleable and all the stuff you have to learn at university, like encryption, and you have to manually study it. You never, you never have to do that in the real world. So it's kind of cool. And I guess there's a bit less risk of cross contamination and having to wash your hands quite so much when you're dealing with digital forensics rather than blood splatter analysis. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, c I can see the appeal of, of shifting to the sort of more digital route. So you started off there, and then you went into actually some really big name companies. So earlier on in your career, you started at Marks and Spencer, and for those not familiar with them, they're a large British retail and effectively a British institution that has brand reputation that's best part of 140 years old, I believe. So that must have been a really sure. interesting place to start to get exposed to the world of cybersecurity and how things operated in, in industry. Yeah, absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. It was great. It was really challenging because, like you said, it's an old company. So with any old, obviously I'm not going to say too much, but with any old company, you have complexities, um, you have technology that's bought in years later, then migrated and changed and you have remnants of that. And it's all kind of different things, loads of different people with, with like tribal knowledge. So there's a lot of weird quirks and complexities in a company like that that's great exposure when you're new in your career um, or early in your career. So I really, really enjoyed it. Learned a lot about um, 
large corporates, how they handle cybersecurity, the challenges that come with it. Um, just, you know, what applies to retail versus what applies to banking and all that kind of things, because there's there's some crossover there as well with, with them. And because we were a cybersecurity team that had access to all kinds of different things, so we had internal pen testing, internal GRC, um, infrastructure teams, Linux teams, everything. I had so much exposure so early on that then my only problem became that I was interested in everything and I wanted a bit of, you know, I wanted to be involved in all of the different things and that my next role was very much, you know, having to step into one of those roles. So it was absolutely fantastic, really loved it. I would always advise someone new in their career that's not sure what route they want to go down to try and get a job in a company where you're in an internal team because you get so much exposure. And what were the different domains you got to to tackle in there? And why did you choose, you know, to specialize in, in one of them in the end? Um, I had I had a lot of exposure to SOC work, to project, cybersecurity project work, working with penetration testers and vulnerability management, all kinds of different stuff, you know, purchasing, um, training, training up, you know, overseas teams, stuff like that. There were a lot of like really interesting bits and bobs there. Um and I did feel like I, I learned that business really well. And then my next role, I went to an MSSP because I wanted to understand the difference between working at a supplier versus working at the recipient of suppliers. So that was that was just something I mentally wanted to check off my list for my career. And and I did. And, and I, you know, I enjoyed that as well. So, yeah, I had a really good time there. I think that's, that's a kind of a slightly different perspective to a lot of the guests we have on where they tend to follow a very, you know, this is the area of technology that I'm interested in. You're perhaps looking at this more from like how the parts of cybersecurity all fit together and how the machine works. Is, would that be fair to say? Yeah, I'd never thought of it like that. But yeah, I would say so, definitely. I, I knew quite early on that I wasn't interested in being a penetration tester because I'm absolutely crap at it. I've done it at university. I've done a qualification in it as well. Um, and when I've been a recipient of of um, services internally, I've had to um, go through penetration testing reports and do vulnerability management and all that kind of remediation type work. Um, but yeah, I, I knew quite early on I ruled out I didn't want to be a penetration tester, definitely not for me. Digital forensics, the more I did it, the more boring I found it. Um, and it was it, so it was very much about how I pieced together my career in this industry in a technical way whilst adding value does that make sense so you know i could have stayed in the sock world and gone down that route um or just moved to another internal company and tried to take that knowledge with me but i did feel like i in the back of my mind always had i would like the idea to run a business i you know that would be the dream i didn't think it was possible at the time it wasn't possible at the time um so it was very much like I've got some really good insight into what works, what doesn't work from a customer perspective. Now I want to learn about what's being delivered in an MSSP. Then I went into um, a company, did a little bit of consulting type work. Um, and then I went into a big financial organisation. So I, I think I've got quite a good overall spectrum of um, insight into how services are sold and, and um, received. Um, now I'm not you know, delivering them on a technical level, which is annoying. But I do, you know, I do often sit and and do some courses online and I think, God, I miss this. <laughs> and uh, pretty much everyone in the company uses Linux. So I, I'm using Linux daily and I'm always in the terminal. So I'm, I'm determined to keep myself um, technical as long as I can, even though I do get a lot of shit in the business for using Nano when everyone else is using Vive. <laughs> oh, well, I'm with you on the Nano thing. So it's all good here. Safe space here for that. Before we jump into kind of your, your journey into founding your own company, so taking that breadth of skill sets you, you acquired, I know that you've been involved in some interesting incidents over the years as you've kind of gone to all these different companies and looked at the problems businesses are facing. So if it's all right with you, we'll just go through a couple of those. Um, one of them being uh, starting with nation states and team viewer. I believe, believe you're involved in an incident with a nation state attack uh, using oh, team viewer. How did you know that? Oh, we, we do our research here on uh, Alice and Bob. <laughs> I've probably mentioned that on something before. So, yeah, I mean, I won't say what company that was in um, or what the, the company um, was that I worked for at the time. 
But yeah, there was, um, there's a, you know, there's a lot of hate towards TeamViewer and they are just a company doing what companies do. You know, they're, they're doing what they're good at. Um, so it's, I don't want to throw any shade at TeamViewer. It's not, it's not about that. It's just about this common tools that serve a business purpose. And that certainly does that can be and are exploited. So a lot of the time, what's good for business isn't always what's good for security. And we can argue the point that um, security is good for business. It is. But if you are, you know, for example, needing to use a tool that's fast, it gets the job done. And then someone comes in and says, oh, you can't use that. Or um, this is being instrumental in an attack that's going on all around the world right now. Um, it's, it's not realistic in a lot of cases for businesses to chalk up the money and the resources to go and change those things. But we, so, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely don't have anything against TeamViewer. But um, maybe that's a lie, a little bit. It is an interesting example, isn't it, of the kind of modern threat? Yes. And it's, again, it's it's something that companies need or they need something like that to fulfill the business. I remember being at university and me and, um, me and a, a friend, Anthony, who's actually in my team right now, um, we used to do our work together when we did group work. We used to do our work together and we used to be on TeamViewer and we used to drag and drop things onto each other's um, desktops. And so it's really easy to use. And he used to spam me with like ridiculous pictures and all kinds of stuff. Anyway, besides the point. But this, uh, you know, this particular incident was really interesting because this company that they, they you know, they weren't remotely interesting in and of themselves, but they supplied services that supplied to a company that supplied services to another company that supplied services to government, um, the UK government. And there was a, a threat actor that was, you know, a well-known, large, advanced persistent threat, government-funded threat actor that was found in that company using TeamViewer. And they'd got there through another company and they basically was chaining together to try and get to this government target. So it was a real early on great lesson for me in um supplier security um, and supply chain attacks and and how those different supply chains are chained together not just in business but also in attack so if you you know as soon as you bring a supplier on they become part of your trusted ecosystem so if you are expecting you know i you know i have you know a hr company so if i am expecting that i might get an email from my hr company about something I could just see that see it's from Hannah click on it and it's not from Hannah it's from someone else that knows Hannah that works there and they're interested in getting to us because they're interested in one of our clients so that's one of the reasons one of the few reasons that we don't disclose who our customers are so no one will ever find on our, any of our websites or um, emails anything LinkedIn nothing any of our customers we don't even follow our customers on social media because we're so committed to not putting them at risk not that we're at risk, but we are part of a supply chain. Some of our um, customers are high targets. So that was a that was a lesson really early on that was super interesting. Yeah, and it seems to be a, that, that combination of kind of targeting the supply chain so you're not directly going after a company and then using these native tools rather than malware payloads that risk being detected or will be flagged by system. It's compromised identities, legitimate software. These These kind of attacks, I think, are very hard to track down and, and detect and actually stop uh, once they're established in an organization. Have you got any advice to companies who think we don't even know if we've been targeted by an attack like this? Where, where should they start thinking about these things? Well, if they don't have any visibility in monitoring, then I think something to start with, if you are a smaller company, so in these supply chain attacks, just I'll just start off with this. In the supply chain attack, you have maybe the massive target and they're the ones that can afford to look after themselves. And then further on down the line, let's talk. Let's think of like Sainsbury's, for example. I've never worked with Sainsbury's. I have no affiliation with Sainsbury's and I'm just using them as, as an example. They might have a supplier that sells them yogurts. And then that yogurt supplier may have a, another supplier that creates the lid that goes on the yogurt pot. Right. So no one gives two shits about the supplier that sells the yogurt. People give less of a shit about the supplier that sells the lid that goes on the yogurt or that they have the machine that puts it, whatever. Right. So they are further and further down that line, they're going to have less and less money and they're going to have less and less priority around the defense of their infrastructure. They're going to go, no one gives a crap about us. We are just simply the yogurt lid people. Now, if 
if Sainsbury's was a huge target for you and it was, you know, could cause loss of life or you could get, you know, millions or billions of pounds out of it, rather than use up your resources, smash through zero days trying to get in and penetrate that company that's got a huge cyber team, suppliers trying to, you know, they're really putting the effort in to defend themselves. You may as well go and target the yogurt lid, yogurt lid people, the yogurt company, and then become part of the ecosystem of trust that is that retailer and try and get in that way. No, it's, it's fine. It's just how, how people should start to think about these supply chain attacks. You know, if, if they're thinking, I have no idea whether we could be impacted by this, we deal with maybe some government agencies, we deal with, uh, like you say, a Sainsbury's, we are the yogurt lid manufacturer. You know, where, where should we start with thinking about d- protecting ourselves against this, especially if we've got limited budgets? So I would say if you've got limited budgets and you genuinely don't know, Look at the tools that you do have, the things that you do have, your email, um, if you're using something like you know, G Suite or Office 365, whatever. Have a look at the, the CIS benchmarks and the recommendations for best practice. So you've already got these tools. Nine times out of 10, they've got security functionality that are being underutilized. So just fully utilize those things, research and see, see what you can do for free. It's not going to cost you anything other than a bit of time. Uh, maybe some resources to implement it. Or if you're using, um, you know, Google Workspace or Office 365, there's documentation there that tell you exactly what you need to do. So the bare minimum, I would say, make use of the functionality you've already got. And I think people do shy away from it. Then there's look at the CIS controls, top 18. Again, it's free. You can download it. You can go through it and you can have a look at all those things. It'll give you a really high level view. Um, You can have a look at the CSAT tool. Again, that's free. Go through that. Do yourself, a, do your company a self audit, and then go and implement your findings. You know, you could end up paying a company thousands of pounds for that. I mean, we do, we do these kinds of audits, um, and um, you know, they're not cheap, but you can do it yourself if you are of limited budget. So, it is all about best practice when it comes to these things. It sounds boring, but it does exist for a reason. I think best practice and risk controls are are there and they are a cliche but they're a cliche for a reason because they do actually work as boring as that is yeah and what, one of the things i also saw that you you'd sort of picked up during your career was when you were working uh, doing some instant response in the financial sector you talked about the importance of having a plan because you know, obviously you need a plan to to deal with things and have the right tools and processes in place so maybe you could just talk about you know how how that shaped your career and some of the things you learned there oh um that's a really good question so some of the things I learned there is the financial sector is dull as dishwater. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, I'm not sorry. It's true. Um, no, it's it was it was interesting, but um, I think the bigger the company, the bigger the silos, and it can become quite boring. So it was a it was a huge difference to like the benefits of what I was saying before about working at uh, Marks and Spencer when you I had good insight into loads of different things. Sometimes with big companies and big financial companies, they have a team for each of those little things. So you don't really get that insight, which is uh, can be a little bit boring if you're like me and you're a little bit like, you know, a meerkat wanting to look at everything. Yeah, there's been, you know, multiple companies that we've worked with um, since we started the business that, you know, they've called us one o'clock in the morning, um, you know, afternoon, morning, whatever. They've called us. They've not been a customer or they might have been a penetration testing customer or something small like that. Um, and something's happened and they've gone, we don't know what to do. Let's ring that security company, which is great. I'm glad that we've got that brand. So they'll ring us and we'll say, right, okay, if you've got an incident response plan, if you've got a disaster recovery plan, and they'll go, what's that? Some of these are quite big names as well. <laughs> We're like, ah, shit, um, sucks to be you. Um, and then you have to sort of be in- incredibly reactive. So I think the importance of planning is... It's, incredibly beneficial and although it's one of those things that you can sort of kick the can down down the road and think okay we just got to finish this project okay we've got change fees okay um we're just onboarding a new person okay we're changing tools and providers and before you know it two years have gone past and you've still not got this plan in place and it's really important so for example if you've got a business and you don't understand um if your customers on, on a very serious level if your customers are more important than your investors if your investors are more important than your customers if your staff are more important than both of those or what so in what order can you sacrifice um your important your your what you're serving right so if 
you get hit with ransomware and you have nothing, everything goes to shit, right? What do you have to please first? Um, customers, investors, suppliers, whatever, right? Just simple things like that is really good to understand because otherwise you're going to end up with different parts of the business with different missions. Yeah. And we can all say all of them should be of equal importance. Yes, okay, but we live in a real world. Having things like um, an understanding of how your business operates is bizarrely under-understood. So, for example, if you're a manufacturer and you get hit with ransomware and the systems go down that feed information or retrieve information from a factory, for example, you don't know how much units you've got left, so you could run out, you're going to lose loads of money, or your machines get turned off, you're going to lose loads of money. Um, you very very quickly could lose your place on the stock market depending on what kind of business you are you have to think about these things and a lot of companies don't think about them um another thing that's really important is i'm using an example of ransomware again is deciding in advance whether or not you're going to pay it so whether or not you should or should not pay it is besides the point i don't think you should personally but you don't want to be fannying around trying to make that decision when you're in the conversation negotiating with ransomware threat actors and all your systems are down your team haven't been paid, um, your suppliers are pissed off and your investors are put, trying to pull their money out. So you don't want to be dealing with all of that fire and then trying to work out, oh, should we, should we not? And if we do, can we trust it? And no, no, no. So just there was, even if it's just those very, very high level but massively important questions, they need to be answered in advance. And the people that are the decision makers, the board, the people that are head of department, they need to understand what they're doing. You need to understand how you're going to manage your brand during this crisis, if you can manage your brand during the crisis. So, for example, if your plan is, okay, well, we'll just put um, daily updates or hourly updates on the website. Okay, can you access the website if everything's been locked down? Don't, don't know. Um, it's good to work that out. A really good way to do that is through a tabletop exercise. Um, you can get another company to do it. Again, you, something that you can do it yourselves if you can be neutral about it. So if you're not just like, oh, well, in theory, we'll be fine, um, then then I would advise get an external party to do it. But th things like that really do add value. And there's some really, really important things that you need to be honest with yourselves about. Are we capable? No. How do we get there? I think that's some great advice. And you know, just getting people to start to think about, we, we always talk about this thing of, assume breach but we're often talking about it in terms of like technical investigation actually in terms of the business processes around it if you're assuming breach what what are you going to do as a business about it what's your like say stand simple things like would we ever pay the ransomware is there a, a legal hurdle to us if we do decide to do that could we potentially breach some laws by doing that and things like that that people haven't often thought through and that's not the kind of conversation you want to be having whilst your company is being taken down at the same time so really good advice for people yeah and also you know, just, again, this the whole concept of having an internal audit, you don't have to put the pressure on yourself to go and hire like one of the big four to come in and do an audit that aligns to some arbitrary framework. You, you can do an audit for your own peace of mind that says, okay, if we were to be attacked, yes, we would be in a position to recover from it. And we've got the evidence because we've done this audit on ourselves and we've told ourselves this. And this is based on fact. So, for example, where are your backups? Do you have backups? And if, if you were hit, would you be able to recover from them? And would you be able to make sure that they were sanitized or that they were, um, you know, trustworthy backups? That, that kind of stuff, really simple stuff. But it tends to be those important questions come up when you've got 60 people on a call having a nervous breakdown. While we're talking about preparedness, actually, um, purple teaming is something I've heard you talk about quite a lot and you're clearly quite passionate about. Maybe you could... Explain to listeners what purple teaming is and how it can actually help organisations. I came up with an analogy recently, which I like, but a few people have just been like, I don't get it. <laughs> I'm going to go over it anyway. Let's try it out on the audience. Okay, so let's say that you have a pen, a pen test. So a penetration test where you test something of a very, very tight scope. So it might be an application, mobile app, or a particular area of an application um, or a server of some sort. So that, that would be, let's say... I'm going to say the contents of, of a fridge, right? So I want you to come in this door and go to the fridge and that route that you take in order to do that, I want you to test that, make sure you can do it and then I want you to see what you can get out of my fridge. Right, okay, that, so that would be a very tight, narrow scope of a pen test. So a red team would very much be um, that the target is my fridge 
but I want you to get in any way that you can. So back door, front door, windows, chimney, whatever. Smash through the walls, get in any way you can and then just see what you can do when you're in there and then tell me about it after. A purple team is at first for emulation. So you would say, okay, I want you to get to the contents of my fridge. Purple teamer would say, your most likely adversaries don't care about your fridge. We'll look at it. But what they're interested in is your wardrobe. Okay, for example. So as a manufacturer, as a medical company, we know the evidence tells us that they don't care about what is in your fridge. They care about what's in your wardrobe. So what we're going to do is we're going to get in any way we can and then we're going to go and completely attack everything we can. Proof of concept, we're not actually going to do it. Um, but we're going to do an open book so your defenders can watch it while we're doing it. So in this scenario, you might have CCTV. It's not. It'll be seen. And we're going to make sure that they can see everything so there's no blind spots. So putting that analogy aside for a minute, what a purple team is, does it is it enables your defenders to identify what they can and can't see and what they can and can't do. So if I was um to if if I was going to attack a server, your server, and I I might say, right, turn to page eleven, section three, I'm gonna run this command against the server, run it. I'm not gonna do it because I'm I'm rubbish at penetration testing. So run it, boom. Then I would say to your blue teamers, right, can you see it? And they'd be looking on the seam, going, Go right, okay, blind spot. Okay, I'm going to pivot from that to this. Can you see that activity in the network traffic? Yes, we can. Great. And you go, right, can you do anything about it? No. Okay, another blind spot. So before you know it, you've built up this picture that says, this is what we can see. Great. This is what we can't. This is what we can do things about. This is what we can't. And then we do a period of remediation and mitigation as well. So we'll go in, we'll put things in place. We'll help the customer to put things in place where we'll enhance visibility or we'll, um, you know, we might do things like just change settings on something so that there's an enhanced protection, for example. We'll identify where there's overspend, where there's duplication of tools, where there's crap staff. Put all that in a report, mediate it as best we can, and then we'll run the exact same attack word for word again. And we'll be able to present then to the CISO, head of IT or whoever, this is where you were before, it was all red. This is where you are now, it's all blue and purple. So rather than having amber, yellow, green, it's either hackable, compromisable, or it's not. So it's either red or it's blue. So that's how we run purple teams. It's different to how other people do it, but I think how, how other companies do it isn't as valuable in, in all fairness. Um, and it's a really good training exercise in the sense that once you hand over that playbook you hand over the threat report so they understand who their adversaries are they understand how that they're being attacked by the adversaries they understand what they can and cannot see and what they need to do in order to defend against it they can then rerun that every year if they want just make sure that their defenses are in line with their most likely adversary there's no point in your defenses being irrelevant to your adversaries just makes no sense i think this is interesting because this kind of charts back to your early career journey where you were going we're not just going to focus on this like one technology thing which is you know the high-tech fridge that the red team are trying to break into we're going to understand all the, the processes that go around it and help the business improve their all overall processes to reduce their risk to to achieve that goal using people using technology using education all together there would that be fair to say i think so yeah i think that's absolutely right and really purple teaming is a test of the spend. So it's not necessarily something that you would sell in to a security team because you're kind of testing yeah. the security team. It's something you'd sell in at more of a, at a more strategic level, so CTO or CEO. So the reason being is sometimes it's hard for business leaders to look at the amount of money that they are spending on cybersecurity, this, this thing that's non-tangible. It's hard for them to look at that and go, okay, this is worth the money that I'm spending on it. Because a lot of time, they don't know if it is. So how do you create tangible results that not only add value to security and the security team, but also add valuable at a more strategic level to say, okay, the money you spent on your MSSP is good. Your MSSP are good or crap. Um, the money that you spent on tools has been wasted. You've got two antivirus products. One's called MDR. Um, 
or you've got you've got a seam but also you've got a second seam that you didn't realize was a seam kind of that your IT team are using but you could be utilizing that differently so there's loads of different ways that you can identify cost saving as well which is one of the biggest ways in which we get it in rather than trying to sell it trying to sell purple team into security professionals if you try and sell it to CFOs CEOs and CTOs it's more about how do we identify if what we're doing is actually working because just not being hacked is no longer good enough <laughs> so you can't a lot of the time you can't go to a CEO and say oh we've not been hacked therefore it's working um it's better if you can go to them and speak the language of finance and do you, do you ever encounter pushback where you know you're trying to talk to people about purple teaming and they think they've got it covered already or they think they're already doing purple teaming but perhaps they aren't really yeah yeah all the time um it's actually not the easiest of things to recommend into a company to be completely frank and a lot of that is down to misunderstanding so with all there's a lot of companies out there that will sell penetration testing or vulnerability scanning and call that purple teaming and the way that they'll wangle it is that they'll they'll sell you a consultant to help with the remediation so, I mean, that's not a bad, it's not a bad service, really, if you ask me, but it's not purple teaming. Um, it's it's kind of what you should be doing anyway when it comes to penetration testing and, and red teaming. Um, or there'll be automated purple team, which will be again a vulnerability scan or a passive vulnerability scan that will pop up and say, um, you know, this is this agent has detected that this machine is no longer in support we recommend updating it to this. Okay, I don't understand how that's purple teaming. So there's a lot of things being missold as purple teaming. It, it happens all the time in this industry for some bloody reason. So for example, like Seam, you get a lot of log aggregators selling themselves as Seam. Um, <laughs> you're a log aggregator, you aggregate logs, which is great, and there's a need for it, but it's not Seam. It's not the same thing. So... It is what it is. We just have to rise above it and, and try and prove the the worth in what we're doing rather than try to dismantle what, what other companies are doing. Yeah. And before we kind of dive into the, the founding of your companies and how you started actually taking those services to people, one of the things that people often say is, you know, careers in cybersecurity can be tough. You've got being on call, you've got dealing with incidents on social hours, but there's often hidden dangers. Now, what can you tell us about doing a roly-poly during a night shift? Oh, oh God. Um, yeah, so this was at said financial company. Um, yeah, I, me and a colleague on the night shift were bored. We were so bored. So we decided to see if we still had it and we could do roly-poly. So we were like, I think we were like in our 20s at the time, late 20s. We were like, let's see if we can still do early polies. And yeah, we can't. So I did one, almost knocked myself out. I basically just headbutted the floor, um, nearly knocked myself out. He was really tall. He managed to do one, but he got a carpet burn on his neck. And yeah, hilarious. I love stuff like that. This is the best thing about working nights. If anyone is like, don't work nights, it's really bad. I, I personally like it. I am a night owl, but you can have a bit more fun. You get all the M&Ms, you get fat, but you get all the M&Ms, you get, you know, all the Diet Coke in the fridge and then you get to do Rolly Polly's on the shift. It's great. There we go. Fine advert for uh, cybersecurity and uh, working <laughs> night shifts there. So you've taken uh, all that experience from working across those different companies. You've learned how the parts of the business come together. You've obviously got some, you know, really strong opinions and good ideas around how businesses can actually realize value and improve things. And then you've taken that and you've gone on to start your own company. Was that always part of the plan? Did you always think I need to be my own boss or was it just something that you saw an opportunity in the market and thought this is what I should go for? No, I mean, it's crazy really because from being a little kid, I, from being a little kid, I just dropped my wine on myself. <laughs> no wasting. Um, from being a little kid, I always wanted to be I always wanted to be a boss of my own business, but very, you know, like in a very superficial, stupid, immature way. So, you know, I wanted to like stomp around in my mum's heels in a skirt suit and tell people what to do on a flip phone. And um, I don't have a flip phone, but other than that, pretty solid. I've got my own heels now, but yeah. Um, I wear my, I wear my uncle Brian's. 
Um, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, so I, I very much concentrated on my career in getting the skills I needed in order to be good at my job. But looking back, maybe somewhere in the back of my mind, I was thinking of a business. Just the sheer fact that I was, the jobs that I was choosing, the, the companies that I was choosing to spend time in and the duration that I wanted to be in those companies was aligned with what I wanted to learn while I was there. And then that's what I've brought to the table in this business. So my business partner, Stephen Ridgway, he's he had, when we got together, like 25 years experience in um, senior IT, uh, network engineering, and then security and security engineering, security leadership. Um, now, like 30 years experience. Um, yeah. So he was the perfect person to start a business with. He was creative and seems to know everything. You know, those Yoda people that are just good at stuff. I can't produce a Ben. Make you sick, don't they? Yeah. Is he? Oh, is he? Is he? Oh, he, he knows yeah. everything. Ben, yeah. Stephen's amazing. Stephen can like play guitar, and then fix his own car. He fixes his own car. I might, I might just be like really bad at cars, but he fixes his own car. He, he can play instruments, and he's just like any technical problem you bring him, he, he'll go, "Oh yes, I know what that is." And you just think, "What? You don't even know? I haven't finished my sentence, and you've got an answer for it." So yeah, he's just a bit of a genius like that. And then on a more like strategic leadership level as well, he's always got great ideas. So for me, he was a great person to go into business with. Vice versa, we, I think we met at the right time. So vice versa, he he saw that I was, you know, someone that I don't really, I genuinely don't really care if I'm liked, genuinely don't really mind challenging, genuinely happy to be a bull in a china shop to get things done. And especially in, in the UK, that's that can be frowned upon but in a lot of cases that's what's needed yeah. and you know an incident response so when we get those phone calls that is we've just been hit by ransomware what the frig do we do it's me that they'll want to deal help them to deal with that because no holds barred we'll get the business back up and run in whereas you know Stephen might look at the situation and go well let's have a look at this and let's whiteboard this out blah blah um, whereas I'll just be like Wah. and you know not everyone <laughs> Everyone likes it, but that's that tends to be what works in those situations. So we're very much like yin and yang when it comes to um, our business. And I realised he was a good business partner when I met. He would be a good business partner when I met him, and he realised the same for me. And that's how we ended up just working together. So is this just a conversation that was sparked up in the office? Was it you know a Friday night after work down the pub? We've Ooh. got an idea together. Let's what's we could do this thing. How did it start? Well, actually, it was very much we were moaning about things in industry. So we were moaning about how MSSP services were being delivered. Right. We, were, we were having a whinge about that. We were whinging about if we were to run a business, if I were to run a business, I would do it like this. Or, and he was like, if I were to run a business, I would do it. And then before we knew it, we were two bottles of red wine down going in the pub, going, we've just wrote a business plan. We, went, we registered a domain name, which was That Security Company, which, by the way, is ridiculous. And Google, the Google algorithm hates our company. <laughs> um, but yeah, before we knew it, um, we were sort of moving forward with this. We had a very serious conversation about our lives, what it would do to uproot our lives. And um, and we just we decided to just go for it. And you, you founded two companies at the same time, right? You've got That Security Company and you've got The Pocket Seam. Or are they all under one umbrella? Yeah, it's all that security company. Pocket Seam is um, a brand, but because it's so cost effective and we've gone down the route of, and everyone, you know, people advise me strongly against competing on price and all this kind of thing, but I don't really. Um, we built Pocket Seam to be affordable. Right. So it's an affordable sock and seam service. We didn't want to cheapen the that security company brand by getting people to ring us and say can i have penetration testing for 50 pence please no fuck off so rather than having those difficult conversations we thought we'll just rebrand we'll just brand them differently and i think we did it too well because it looks like we've got two companies um we don't we have one company that's curry company and then the pocket scene brand sits under it and uh, what have been some of the biggest surprises or challenges when it's come to running your own company that you just haven't anticipated i think one of the biggest su surprises to be completely honest was that we we built the Pocket Seam brand to be aimed at small to medium-sized businesses that needed to sort of tick off Seam. 
and visibility. And we've, we even called it pocket seam. So we're saying to people, you know, this is for smaller businesses. And the, the quickest uptake has been large companies. I mean, huge. And we've been shocked at how we've managed to do that. And that's, that's fantastic. And, you know, we're loving it. But yeah, it's sort of, we built this brand for this particular demographic, but it, it resonated during lockdown with these bigger companies that were being told you have to make savings in this area or um, we're not getting the value from this particular company and then they'll come to us. So that's been really, really cool and really surprising. Another surprise has been the fact that the vast majority of our customers, not just with Seam, but with other services as well, have come to us as a, sounds terrible, but kind of as a last resort. So they've been through some of the really big vendors um, that are competitors of ours and been burnt and then come to us as like, a, well, we'll give these guys a go. And then ended up kind of happy. And that's that's nice, but that's really surprising. We didn't We did not expect that. We were thinking we were going to get, you know, little yogurt lid companies that no one had heard of. <laughs> How do you make sure? So obviously you're saying, you know, you're trying to make it as affordable as possible and you've done a little bit of brand separation so it's not, you know, devaluing that security company brand. How do you make sure that Pocket Seam, even though it's, and you know, the, the affordable option, how do you balance that with delivering value for customers? Yeah, so we do that by offering open source. So the the margins on MSSP services are really tight. And a lot of that is down to licensing. So we just remove that from the equation. So we don't um, have, we don't license anything. We use open source. That scares a lot of people. But I always say, are you using Linux and in your infrastructure? Yes. Then you already use an open source. Um, so that, that doesn't tend to be a major issue. Um, a lot of it is storage and the fees that come with storing your customer's data, churning through it and all that kind of stuff. So we, the, what makes us different is we build the seam in the customer's environment. So we, we don't take their data away from them and then hold it in a multi-tenant solution. So what tends to happen normally is you have a multi-tenant solution that's got all of your different customers in it. And because that makes it easier and cheaper for the supplier, not the customer, or safer for the customer, we've turned that on its head. So we build it for them in their environment. And if they don't like the service, they can get rid of it and we leave and they keep the technology. So they're buying a seam, they never have to buy it again. If they look after it, they've still got to take the seam in 10 years' time. Um, so we've, we've tried to think of it in, um, in how it benefits the customer, and it just so happens that those things are cheaper. Um, so because we're not buying, you know, like a massive arc site or something like that to sit at our sock side and feeding everything into it, we're saving, we're saving a load of money so we can afford to give those, those um, cost savings to our customers. Um, something else as well is we don't resell. So um, reseller margins are so tight that it's unbelievably tight. You're talking like pounds, you know, a couple of pounds per user in, on, some, on some things. So really, really tight. We just refuse to do it. We've had some massive companies that have come to us and they want to use our network and they want to resell through us. We don't, we don't do it. We also don't resell. No one resells us and we don't resell anyone else. So there is no one else on the planet that is also reselling pocket seam service um, or any of our services, actually. So that's kind of cool. So we can keep the cost down in a lot of different quirky ways. And because me and Stephen, my business partner, have been on that delivery side before, we know where the price gets amplified um, and where, you know, because they're making up for these little margins that they've got because we don't have those little margins, we don't have to amplify the cost in other areas. So um, it's quite easy, to be honest. So it ends up being just basically quite a fair deal for the customer and a fair deal for yourself then? Yeah, a fair deal for the customer. Um, we're solid, you know, we're absolutely great out of it. Um, we wouldn't do it if we weren't. Um, and that that's it, really. So, you know, I'm not, I you know, I, I'm a CEO, but I'm not out there on private jets and buying a yacht just yet. <laughs> just yet, maybe next week. Um, so the, the costs that we are generating, so the, the costs, the profit that we're generating is very much in line with the value as well. That's great. And then, you know, like I said, at the start of the episode, that security company, I've got this line on there that says, if we're doing our job right, you know, you won't need us anymore. We'll get you. And you're doing the same thing there yeah. with the, the same solution of 
if you don't need it anymore, we've built it for you. It's there. It's established. You just need to water it occasionally and you're good. That's refreshing. We do say to our customers, you know, one of the saving graces is if you don't like the service, get rid of it. You keep the scene. Um, if, if someone wants to leave us, we see it as being we've done something wrong. Therefore, we'll hand over to them, train them up on how to use it, and then we'll bugger off. Um, something else we do, which our competitors do not do, is um, a self-sufficiency plan. Right. So we have different, I'm, I'm conscious I'm not going to be too salesy here, but I just want to talk about like how other companies aren't doing this in industry. Maybe they, maybe they should. And it, it certainly is working for us. So we'll have like different, rather than paying events per second or for storage fees and all this, you pay for a package. So platinum, gold, silver. Now, if a company has decided they want to be self-sufficient, so they want to internalize their SOC, they want to build a SOC, um, build skills, processes, all that kind of stuff within two years or three years, we can start them off on one tier and then move down the tiers while we're doing that we're slowly handing over training up their internal team with the knowledge that we are leaving so we're not trying to sell to them you know we're not trying to get a renewal every year or every three years we're literally the plan is we're going to come in and we're going to get you to a point where you don't need us anymore and that's something that does attract a unique type of customer that has a plan, you know, they might have a CISO in place or a head of IT that's or a CTO that's decided we don't want to faff around with all these vendors. We want to be on our own, self-sufficient, but we need to get started. And and going with something like this is a good way to do it because then by the time you've got to that lower tier, you kick us out, you've got a scene, it's refined, it's working and all your stuff trained on it. So if there's people out there listening to this thinking they have similar ideas to, mm. you know, reapproach an area of, cybersecurity, product management, whatever challenge they're trying to solve is, what's your advice for them to get this from a kind of an idea in their head or a kind of a, a rant down the pub into a business plan and actually take this thing forward? So what what we did, and it really did help, is we didn't put any pressure on ourselves for the first year. So we weren't like, right, okay, we're going to go out and sell, sell, sell. What we did was we attended conferences, um, and we just like wore our t-shirt, wore our hat, handed business cards out, all that kind of cheesy stuff. Um, we studied the tools that we wanted to use. We made mistakes. We reached out to contacts we already had and said, hey, can we deliver purple teaming for you um, at cost? So, you know, it's going to cost us this much to do it. Really transparent. It's going to cost us this much to do it. Can we do that for you? And just to get feedback. Yeah. Or we'd you know um swallow the price and say um can we build this theme for you in your environment for like a university or um, a charity or something for example we build this for you um can you use it for a month and just let us know what you think about it if you don't like it we'll get we'll get rid of it we'll remove it for you if you do want to keep it we'll just train you on how to maintain it and then we'll leave you alone yeah all right so you make offers like that that are going to benefit you and don't expect the earth in return these companies can't put their trust in you. You don't have a background yet as a business. Um, so we just sort of took the pressure off ourselves for the first year um, and just did, did wacky stuff like that and got our name out there um, and got some really good referrals that way. So, yeah. you know, if we deployed it into a charity, we'd say, do you mind just referring us into your contact at so-and-so? Um, sometimes they'd say, no, bugger off. And sometimes they'd say, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so instead of focusing on just like out-and-out out growth and ARR, actually building trust, building a reputation, and then you're in a good yep. place when you actually come to charging. Now, that, that makes a lot of sense there. Um, we're nearly out of time today, but I just wanted to ask you, where do you think the security industry and specifically actually your companies, where do you want them to be in five years' time? The security industry. Okay, so the security industry worries me in a lot of ways because – there is this narrative constantly of you don't have to be technical to be in cyber. And I'm afraid you do. Unless you want to be on the peripheries of cybersecurity, so, you know, sales, recruitment, um, service management, all that kind of stuff, it's all valuable stuff and we need it. Um, but if you want to be in a technical role in cybersecurity, sorry about the traffic, if you want to be in a technical role in cybersecurity, which is where we do need the bodies, we do need people in those areas, um, you do absolutely need to be technical. And it, it kind of scares me a little bit that there's so much discourse around 
promoting the non-technical side in cyber and sort of diminishing the achievements of people that have been at the forefront of development in digital forensics and penetration testing and, you know, um, book hunting and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that, that concerns me. I'm, I'm worried about where that's going because I am interviewing people and receiving CVs and there's a lot of the time they're saying, I want this much with no experience um, and no technical ability, but they've come through like um, a boot camp or they've been to conferences where they've had someone with great influence talking at them about the fact that they should be valuing themselves this high despite the fact they have absolutely nothing to offer the industry um, and no technical ability and no desire to really get their teeth into it. So I think a lot of um, people at the moment are looking at um, cybersecurity through a non-technical lens and that's sort of the antithesis of what we need. We need more people that are willing to put the time in and not get distracted away from um, pushing our, our legal capabilities in this com country forward through digital forensics. Um, you know, managing to actually get those convictions and um, also being at the forefront of um, attack so that, that we can defend before we're attacked by our adversaries as a, as a nation. So these things, these things concern me. So there's a lot of concern there around the state of the industry just from what I'm seeing coming through at the moment. Um, and as for the, our company, hopefully we'll be doing what we're doing now, but on a bigger scale. Um, we're very lucky in the sense that, I don't know if it's luck or if it's good business practices, if I may say so myself. Um, you know, we are one of those companies that people want on their CV, which is amazing. So we do get constant drip feed of CVs coming in, um, whether it's on social media or via a website or via email, constantly being bombarded with people that want to work for us. Really good quality people sometimes as well, which is amazing. Um, so I think that's a really good sign that we've never had to use recruiters or anything like that. So hopefully we can just sort of utilize that stream of interest and, and keep growing. And if there's more people out there who are interested, I know you're doing your best to thwart the Google algorithms with your company name, but what's the best place for them to, to track you down and find you? So I'm on LinkedIn, Eliza May Austin, um, Eliza May Austin on Twitter as well. But yeah, there's that security.company try and find it maybe treat it as a ctf trying to find our flipping website or pocketscene.co.uk um and you'll yeah the emails go to the same place that's great well thank you very much for your time here that's unfortunately all we have time for on this episode i'd like to thank our guest uh, eliza may austin for sharing some of her journey today with us from those dial-ups in 90s movies to dealing with nation states and the odd roly-poly along the way for good measure Eliza's no-nonsense, just-defense approach is a really refreshing counter to an industry full of fear, hype, and uncertainty. And, you know, your passion clearly shines through here that you uh, you want to think about things in a decent uh, and di different way and, and actually just offer security that helps people in a, in a fair and straightforward way. So we really appreciate all the things you do in there. As always, thanks to Super Producer Ben and the team at Beyond Trust who make this podcast happen. I'm James Maud, and this has been The Adventures of Alison Bob. Bob.